Amen. It's so good to be back with you all at Chi Alpha. Pastor Victor, our beautiful guitar player, but let's give him a round of applause just for his handsomeness. Pastor Victor and myself, we were gone last week. We were in Arkansas just learning about Chi Alpha and hanging out with other national leaders, so we missed you guys so much, but I did hear that Pastor Casey delivered an incredible message. Let's give her a round of applause. We learned last week that Victor and I aren't needed, so you know what? We're going on vacation more often. Anyways, if you call boring business meetings vacation. Anywho, we haven't got the chance to meet yet. My name is Derek, and I am the director here of Chi Alpha. If you're new to Chi Alpha, our prayer is that you'll feel loved, you'll feel welcomed, and if, if this is your first time with us, you picked a very interesting week to check out Chi Alpha. As tonight, we're going to explore God's design for sexuality. You picked a great first week. I do promise we do not talk about sex every week. And I'm kind of excited for that. But anyways, we're going to talk about it tonight, though. So please bear with us if this is your first time. There's no feeling of shame or judgment. But we are going to explore what God has to say in this area. And the reason we're talking about this tonight is because we're in the middle of our sermon series called Getting Together, where we're looking at what the Bible has to say about things such as sex, but also love, dating, marriage, all that good stuff. Our culture has told us that our bodies are really just vessels that we can do whatever we want with, and it won't harm anything. The chief aim, according to our culture, is for just to find pleasure. This has led to the rise of hookup culture where Tinder has become really just this escape for us to find pleasure. Sex has gone from something that happens in the context of a loving relationship where you're committed to each other for life and has turned into something very selfish. Our culture has become so much more individualistic and our sexuality has followed suit. Hopefully, over this past year, if you've been diving into Chi Alpha, you've begun to fall in love with Jesus. And as this happens, sometimes as we fall in love with Jesus, it's hard because we have to balance this tension of the world's sexual ethics and what Jesus has to say on the matter. They don't seem to line up a lot, and that can create kind of tension inside of our heart. So maybe you're here tonight. And if you're honest, you've walked in with an addiction. Maybe it's something like addiction to pornography or masturbation, and you aren't proud of these things. You want it to stop, but it's just really challenging. Maybe you feel covered in shame. Maybe you've been hiding these sin issues, and you feel this need to keep up the facade of being a good Christian. But if you're honest, you're not sure how much longer you can keep it up. Or maybe you're in a relationship, And you just want to know, what does it look like to honor God with our dating lives and our sex lives specifically? Maybe you've done things you regret in your dating relationship and you want to find a better way. Or maybe you're single, but you're still struggling with sins of your past. Maybe you're wrestling with shame. Or maybe you're single and you're really ready to mingle. So you want to find out, how do you do this well going in the future? Even though it might be taboo to say, let's just be honest, a lot of us come into tonight with sex on our minds. It's a part of our daily life and it can lead to so much pain but it can also be something that leads to beauty if done in the right context. It's truly like we're playing with fire. There's a character in the Old Testament who knows this all too well. He knows what it looks like to walk a fine line. So we'll be in Judges chapter 14. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. But before that, before we tell the story, I want to give you some background information. Tonight, we're going to tell this story of a guy named Samson. Samson had this special calling over his life. He had this calling ever since he was in his mother's womb. Samson was called to be what was called a Nazarite. Will you all say Nazarite? Nazarite. That's beautiful. Anyways, I don't usually do that, but I was feeling kind of funky, so we'll keep going. But a Nazarite is someone who is specifically dedicated to God. They made special commitments to God in order to remain pure. 
There's actually three commitments. They're kind of weird. Number one, they couldn't cut their hair. I've been trying to be a Nazarite for a little bit, but maybe I should get a haircut. Anyway, sorry, I thought that'd be funny. I guess it's not. Forrest might smile at me because he's cutting his hair. All right, don't give me your pity laughs. Number two, they weren't allowed to drink wine. And number three, they weren't allowed to touch anything dead. And that was to keep themselves ceremonially clean and pure before God. And God took these vows seriously. And Samson was actually extremely unique. So most people, when they took this Nazarite vow, they just did so for maybe a short period of time, six months, a year, two years. But Samson was to be a Nazarite for his entire life. So he was supposed to stay pure for his entire life. However, he doesn't do a great job of this. Samson starts his story by going and falling in love with a girl from the enemy country, the country that's trying to kill the people of God, he's supposed to go destroy them, but he chooses instead to go flirt with them and ends up finding one that she likes. And then we get to the story we're gonna read tonight. So Samson's kind of on his way back from meeting this newfound lady, and he's gonna go tell his family about what happens, and we'll pick up right there in Judges chapter 14, verses five through nine. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. That's not an innuendo. It's a literal lion. Let's keep going. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. That meant he thought he was fine. Anyways, after some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold... There's a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother, and he gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. The title of our sermon tonight is Action. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we love you. God, thank you so much that we get to come together and we get to learn about your design for our lives, Jesus. I pray that you'll just speak clearly tonight. We love you so much. Amen. When I was a senior in high school, my friends and I decided that we were going to coach a fifth grade flag football team. I was not coaching these kids to help them learn or to like get better. My only desire was to win at all costs. See, youth flag football, it's supposed to be about like equal playing time, learning the game, fun, good fundamentals, but that really didn't interest me, if I'm just being honest. So I did two things that I probably shouldn't have done looking back. First of all, we had what was called a fourth quarter team. So in youth sports, usually there's like a first half team and a second half team. They play equal, you divide your team up, and then everyone gets equal playing time. But... If you do it that way, then you probably want to put half your good players in one half, half your good players in the other half. And then I realized, well, what if the game gets close and we're in the fourth quarter and we really got to squeak out a win? So I created our fourth quarter team where we put all the good players together to come in just in the fourth quarter. And if you stunk at football, you went to the bench right where you belonged. Anyways, I'm just kidding. Don't be angry at me. But I had this idea. And so I created this fourth quarter team with our best players because technically there was no rule saying that I couldn't do that. Now, the parents didn't like it. The other coaches certainly didn't like it. But that wasn't the worst thing I did. So flag football is obviously not tackle football. That's flag. So you're supposed to like avoid conflict. But technically, if you read the rule book, it never says you can't hit someone. It never says it. So I thought, hmm, sometimes it's kind of hard to grab a flag. So I taught the guys, please go for their flags first. But if they're about to get by you, you just lay the wood. Lay them out because they're not getting by you and nothing wrong is going to happen. They don't call flags because technically it's not in the rules. See, I think the people who designed this league thought that the adults would be like mature enough to not do that, but they assumed incorrectly. So 
I taught them to tackle people at all costs. In case you are curious, which I know you are, we went five and one that year and tied for first place. That loss ticked me off, but that team lost to someone else. So we did tie, so that was exciting for first place. But, anywho, technically, I was not breaking any rules as that coach, so I couldn't get in trouble. But I got as close to the line of breaking rules as possible. And this was also Samson's MO. He loved to get as close to the line as possible, or even cross the line sometimes to get what he wanted. We have to remember that Samson, he was a Nazarite, meaning he was to be set apart to be used by God, right? We talked about he wasn't supposed to touch dead things as part of this vow. But Samson was sly. As he's passing this dead, dead lion's carcass, he knows he can't touch the lion, but he really wants the honey. So he thinks to himself, how can I get what I want? How can I do what I think best and what I want in this moment without technically breaking the rules? So he sees this lion, and he, this is how I picture it. He's got like the carcass, and there's honey in the middle. So he like contorts his arm and like is hanging on by a thread, and like, oop, got it. I didn't touch the dead lion. So he gets really close to touching it, but he doesn't to get the honey. He gets what he wants without technically breaking the rules. I think we often do this with our sex lives. See, we have to start tonight by realizing that sex by itself is good. Sex is a good gift from God when we do it in the right context. Just like the Nazarite vow was a good gift from God to Samson, sex is a good gift to us. God's first command to humanity in regards to sexuality was not a negative one. God didn't say, don't do this or don't do that. No, his first command was a positive one. His first command in regards to sex, was be fruitful and multiply. My wife and I are obeying that command this year because she's pregnant. Come on, baby. I first sound like Jesus. I'm good. Come on. I'm an obedient son of Jesus. He says jump. I say how high. Anyways. I'm feeling, I felt pretty good about that. We did it. Anyways, that's not the point of tonight. Just, you guys all just gave me such awkward looks like, ew, that's gross. You're old. Not that old. Too often, though, in church environments, when we think of sex, we focus so much on the negatives. We say, don't watch porn. Don't make out. Don't have sex before marriage. And hear me, we shouldn't do those things. That's good advice. But see, when God created sex, he created it as a positive thing. So sex is not supposed to be something that brings us guilt or shame. It's actually supposed to bring us joy. Imagine a life where you have nothing to hide, nothing to feel shameful about when you think of this topic. Adam and Eve, who were the first two humans, they had sex before they sinned. Sex came before sin. Because in the right context, it's a good thing. See, the problem started happening when we started choosing God's creation over him as the creator. See, in the beginning of time, Eve decided that she wanted this fruit she wasn't allowed to have. She wanted this fruit that God created more than her own relationship with God. And this sent humanity down this trajectory where we choose God's creation over him time and time again. See, sex was meant to be a good gift to enjoy, but it's turned into a God that we bow to. And this God is very hard to satisfy. John Mark Comer, who wrote a book that we get a lot of this content from, says this. When sex is your God, you just have to download porn. You have to jack off. You have to sleep with your boyfriend. You have to let him touch you. You have to give into your body's cravings, even if you know it's going to steal from your future. You have no choice because you're a slave. We like to define freedom as the ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want. But to Jesus, that's not freedom. That's slavery. Freedom, at least in Jesus' mind, is the ability to do whatever you should. 
to enjoy the world as God intended it. See, we think having no boundaries is the key to freedom, when in actuality, that enslaves us. Because sex can control us, it has power over us, and it brings us shame, and that's not from God. Sex outside of the context that God has created to be done in is anything but freeing. We have to trust that our creator might know better than us in regards to sexuality. God is not out to steal your fun, but he knows that if sex is not done in the container of marriage, it can become dangerous and controlling. Because we think sex will actually satisfy us. We have these thoughts that if I can finally sleep with him or her, get my next porn fix, then I'll be free. And it controls your thought life when in actuality, it's just enslaving you. It will let you down. Sex does not live up to the hype. The creation is not as good as the creator. Hear me, sex is fun, but it's not as fun as I think sometimes we make it out to be because it's not good enough to fulfill us because it's not God. Let's go back to Samson. Samson gets as close to touching that dead animal as possible. And this pattern is often repeated throughout his life. He does just enough to please his role, but he doesn't turn to God and run after him. So eventually, as we continue on in Judges, he does cross the line and lose power from God. He loses his anointing. It's actually, he has a sexual relationship with this girl named Delilah. That's his demise. His endless search for pleasure actually kills him. But he set himself up for failure before he crossed the line by being willing to tiptoe around the rules instead of just trusting that God knows best. So God's best for Samson was to not touch the dead body. What's God's best for us in regards to our sex lives? In the church world, we're constantly told just don't have sex before marriage, which I agree with. However, I've learned something the past few years as I've started to read the Bible systematically. The Bible never says Thou shalt not have sex before marriage. It's not in there at all. What it actually says is found in Matthew chapter 5 in Jesus' most famous sermon. He's teaching people what it looks like to be one of his followers and live in his kingdom. In verses 27 and 28, he tells us what our sexuality should look like. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, one of the Ten Commandments, the ten biggest rules they followed in the Old Testament was to not commit adultery, to not sleep with your neighbor's wife, to not cheat on your spouse. That's the definition of adultery. However, Jesus in the New Testament, he ups the ante. He says, no, it's more than that. He says, even if you look at a woman with lustful intent or a man, you have committed adultery and you have sinned. See, Jesus is telling us that sexual sin is not just sleeping with someone who's not your spouse. It's the idea of lusting. And the book of Matthew, where we get this sermon from, was written in the Greek language. And the Greek word for the, our word lust is this word epithemeo. And epithemeo, directly translated, means to desire, to long for. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, the author Paul goes on to say that we should run away from sexual sin. He says, flee from sexual immorality. So we put these two passages together. What we are reading is that we are to run away from lust. We are to flee away from sexual desires or longings. Comer says, this phrase, sexual immorality, is porneia in Greek, and it's a junk drawer word. Paul means any and all forms of sexual activity outside of the marriage between a man and a woman. Everything from sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, friends with benefits, casual sex, oral sex, adultery, prostitution to porn, raunchy movies, adult films, strip clubs, it's all porneia. So we put these two Greek words together of epithemeo and porneia. It means we're not supposed to desire or long for any of those things. Any and all sexual activity or sexual thoughts outside 
of marriage between a man or, and a woman is lust. Anything else is sexual sin according to the New Testament. I do want to say something, though. This obviously excludes if something sexual was done to you. You have nothing to repent for if it was not consensual. That sin is completely in the perpetrator. I don't want to hear any of the garbage that it's somehow your fault. So if something happened to you, that's not something you need to repent for. But in all other circumstances, anything that makes us have a desire for sex, anything that turns us on, is lusting. So when your thoughts go from affection, wow, I love them, she's beautiful, he's handsome, to arousal, I just want to rip their shirt off, that's when you know you're lusting. Please recognize that arousal or lust, that's not just attraction. It's okay to look at someone and think, wow, they are a good-looking human being. I hope you find your significant other attractive. If not, that's probably not good. We should go back a couple weeks ago. But attraction is different from action. You can be attracted to someone without acting on it by thinking or doing sexual things with them. See, the key is that when your affection, their attractive, turns into arousal, that's when you shut it down. Again, the Bible never says don't have sex before marriage. It starts way before that. It starts with not even thinking sexual thoughts about someone that's not your spouse, let alone making out with them, living with them, spending the night with them, or touching someone who's not your spouse. All that stuff is clearly sin. And going back to Jesus' sermon in Matthew, he starts with saying not to lust, and then he tells us what to do if something causes us to lust. This is really good news, people. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown to hell. Oh, we get better. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better to lose one of those members than your whole body going to hell. Good news this evening. I hope this is your first time. <laughs> anyway, I know this seems harsh. But see, God knows more than us, and he knows it's better for us to lose a member, to lose a hand or an eye, than to lose our whole lives. He knows that we are called to do whatever we can to avoid sin, especially sexual sin. Jesus talks about sexual sin all the time. He knows that that's just going to hurt us. I want you guys to imagine something for me. I'm going to give you a big illustration, so roll with me for a few minutes. I want you to imagine that this stage is like a cliff, okay? And on this edge of the cliff, it starts to get narrow like a triangle coming to a point, meaning there's less ground to walk on, all right? So it gets smaller and smaller, and see, in our thought process, if we fall off the cliff, that's sexual sin. So we think often that having sex outside of marriage, like watching porn, that's clearly falling off the cliff. That's clearly sin. We think that's gonna push us over the edge. We think maybe I can just like, Look on Instagram and wander over the Discover tab or some accounts I know will have someone in a bikini. They're not naked, so I'm good. It's not sin. Or maybe in a relationship and you're like, I think I can just spend the night with my boyfriend. We can make out. We can handle it. We can cuddle all night. We just won't have sex, I promise. But see, we need to realize that falling off the edge of the cliff is not just sex. It's lusting. Anything that causes you to lust is you jumping off the cliff into sin. So that picture of a girl in a bikini is probably going to make you lust, which will probably turn you on. If you make out with your boyfriend, you will probably lust after them. If not, you're probably doing it wrong. Let's just be honest about it, okay? If you're not getting excited, then someone will teach you how to do that later. But see, the point of making out is not to just make out. The point is to turn you on to get you ready to have sex. That's why it was designed. We are not designed to get all turned on 
and immediately shut it off before we cross some big line. It's like we think the point of a car is to get there, turn on, and then stay in the garage forever and like suffocate from the thing, right? No, that's not the point of this. You turn the car on to drive the car, right? Just sitting there with the fumes is not good for you. It makes you think weird things, which is why people are dating or just crazy. I'm just kidding. We'll keep going. See, no God, he made the cliff of sin, lust, because he knows that after we've lusted, we've committed adultery in our minds. And after you engage your brain in sexual thoughts, it's really hard to stop. We were not designed to get all hot and bothered and be like, I'm good now. Thank you, Jesus, for that. That just doesn't make any sense. So as we try and try to get closer to the cliff without jumping off, it just becomes harder and harder because we weren't made to dangle on the cliff. I think often we think we're like, just like stepping like, I'm good, I'm good, I can do what I want, I'm not gonna fall, not gonna fall. You're like, I can look at things I shouldn't, I'm not gonna fall, you're going to fall. That's the design of the cliff. We are like Samson, we want the honey, but we also wanna avoid lust. But then we make excuses for ourselves and we find ways to get the honey in ways that don't feel as wrong. We just feel better about ourselves, right? We're trying to do as much sexual stuff as we can without going too far, but that's just making our lives so much harder. For example, if getting on Instagram usually leads you to seeing a shirtless dude, which causes you to have sexual thoughts about them, which leads you to watching porn, I've got this idea for you. What if you got rid of Instagram? Don't make it harder for yourself than you need to be. Or if you're in a relationship and you realize, well, every time we cross our boundaries, it's after 10 p.m., we're, we're in our room, alone, with the door shut. Here's a crazy idea. Keep the door open. <laughs> don't hang out past 10 p.m. You don't even be like, I've got self-control. I can do this. Yay. And you screw up. Don't do that. <laughs> Make life easier for yourself. Do whatever it takes to avoid sin. Think back to the cliff. If you're going to build a fence, don't build a fence on the very pointed part, because if you're uncoordinated and you're like this, you might fall over the fence and plummet to your death. How about we build the fence like over here so we can have it, if we fall off, we just fall onto like nice grassy area instead of falling to our death. Make the fence far away from sin so then if you screw up, it's not too bad. This means make your physical boundaries far from lust. Don't make it at whatever caused you to stumble. So if on one side of the cliff is lust or sexual sin, that's the creation of sex. So I'm telling you, turn around and run as fast as you can that way, away from sin. But what's on the other side? On the other side is our creator. It's Jesus. So we're made to run far away from the cliff of sin and to run to Jesus because only when we're running towards Jesus, only then are we safe. Don't trust the creation and God, don't trust your willpower just trust Jesus. The creator, he looked at Samson and he said, you are special and you have a calling over your life. He said, I want you to be set apart from me. And God looks at each and every one of us the exact same way. You are set apart to be used by God, but will you trust that what God has for you is good or better than what you have for yourself? We ask questions like, what's the line? How far can we go? If I don't touch the lion's body, can I still eat the honey? We want to know how far is too far, but the real question we should be asking is, when can I start? And the answer to that question is only one, after your wedding day. Only then can you start. Not when you get engaged, 
Not when you've been dating for two weeks, not when you make a Facebook official. That's like, all right, we're good to go now, baby. No, no, no. Only when you make that covenant between you and God are you ready to go. So in these seasons of waiting, instead of asking how far can we go, what we should be really asking is how close to Jesus can I get? How holy can I be? God wants us to be holy because he is holy. This word holy in the Hebrew language, which is where the Old Testament was written in, is kodesh. This word means dedicated to, special, different from the norm. We're to be holy or dedicated to God, exclusively attached to him. It's kind of like a marriage. See, I am set apart for my wife, Taylor. She is mine and I am hers. But in order for me to be set apart for her, I have to say no to everything else. Because you can't be set apart for everything, right? You can't say, like, I'm exclusively a Coke drinker, but also drink Pepsi. That just doesn't make sense. But we think saying no and limiting options is a burden, but it's anything but. See, when Taylor and I got married, my older brother officiated our wedding. When he asked me to commit to Taylor for life and death, he asked me to be exclusively hers. And then I said, I do. Do you think people at our wedding were thinking, wow, what a sucker, he just committed to one lady that's clearly more attractive than him. He's saying no to three billion other women that probably would have said no, but he's saying no to those three billion other women that he could potentially have married. What a killjoy. He's gonna love her no matter what, even when he doesn't want to? He's trapped, he's lost all his freedom. No, when I married Taylor, that's when I found true freedom. Because in saying no to a lot of other things, I get to say yes to her every day. And that's the best yes I could give. With our own lives, we are called to say no to other things so we can say yes to God. Colmer says, the same is true for holiness. We have to say no to all sorts of things, but we do so in order to say yes to life with God. To be holy, then, is to be like God. That was God's intent in the beginning. We were made in God's image. It's called the Imago Dei. We are made to be like God. We are supposed to be like God all along, but then sin came and warped our humanness. So this is actually how we find freedom. We have to say no to other things. But in doing so, we get to say yes to living the way we were designed. We get to say yes to the smartest being in the universe. We aren't saying yes to some idiot who doesn't know what they're talking about. We're saying yes to the person who created it all, who also loves you and knows what's best. Remember, we've talked about this a couple times. God's laws are not motivation for obedience, but descriptions of reality from an infinite perspective, which means we don't just follow God because we feel like we have to. We follow God because he understands reality way better than us, meaning he's all-knowing and all-loving. So if he knows best and he cares about us, why would we not listen to him? So why does God tell us to avoid sexual sin and that it's only healthy in a marriage between a man and a woman? It's because when you have sexual relationships with someone, you're joined together as one flesh. This word for one in Hebrew is ikad. Ikad with the word flesh means fused together at the deepest level. So what God is saying is that when you have sexual relations with someone, you are fused together on the deepest levels with them. So I want you to imagine a piece of paper with glue on it, and then you take another piece of paper and you stick them together. They become fused together, right? The only way to undo that action is with a lot of damage. Comer tells us something powerful happens in sex. Two humans become a cod. They know each other, and this action cannot be undone. It's irreversible. And to God, the only relationship strong enough to hold that kind of untamed, fierce power is marriage. That's the only container that can handle the nuclear force we call sex. See, when you try to rip these two pieces of paper together, they leave parts of themselves on the other piece of paper, right? 
because they refuse to gather. This is what happens when we have sexual relationships with someone who's not our spouse. We leave a piece of ourselves behind. Comer says, the more people you sleep with, the more you start to hollow yourself out until you have little or nothing left to give away. See, this is because God's smart at us. He tells us how to live a sexual lives. This is why he says we should have our sexual life with one spouse so we can give them our everything, so we have nothing left behind. And even if you're in a serious relationship and you think you've given that person your piece of paper until you are married, until you've made a covenant before God, you do not belong to them because there's a real quick way out. A serious relationship is not a strong enough bond to handle sex because a serious relationship does not have the anointing of God. So until you've made that covenant with God, it doesn't change anything. Dating didn't even exist in the Bible. I told you all that two weeks ago, but we don't need to go back to that. So when you have sexual relationship with someone who is not your spouse, all it does is cause you pain and it leaves behind some scars. I know this all too well. And yes, that is a Taylor Swift reference. Thank you very much. See, I've talked about the girlfriend that I had my senior year of high school quite a bit. And I've told you guys that her and I didn't honor God in our relationship. We crossed sexual boundaries. But what does that actually mean? We didn't have sex. That was my cliff. I'm like, that's jumping off. That's too far. I'm not a sinner. But we did everything else. And I'm convinced that it left the same amount of paper or pain behind that having actual sex would have left because the other things are all sexual as well. Just because it doesn't feel as bad in our Christian culture doesn't mean it's not a sin. Because we were doing what was designed to only be done between two married people. Because any sexual relationship is designed only for marriage. And I'll be honest with you guys. I look back to that season with so much regret. See, I gave something to this girl that rightfully belonged to God and then belonged to Taylor. Not only that, I stole something. See, I stole something that rightfully belonged to my ex-girlfriend's future husband. Sex is theft. When you have sexual relationship with someone who's not your spouse, you're stealing from their joy, you're stealing from the relationship with God. We think, I just love him or her so much, that's why I have to do this, but I'm just not sure that I agree. I think the proper sentence would be, I lust him or her. Comer says, love's about giving, lust is about getting. Or you say, I need him, I need to have a physical relationship in order to feel love. That's how I feel wanted or connected. Maybe you're like, my love language is physical touch. And I just need that to feel connected. Are you sure you need it? Or do you just want it? Maybe you're just trying to find your fulfillment and happiness through your relationship instead of through God. When we have sexual relationship with someone who's not, or we're like our significant other, we're causing them to sin. Do we get that? When we do sexual things with someone, we're not only causing ourselves to sin, but also them. And true love would never want to harm someone else. Over my dead body would I want to harm Taylor. And if any of you try to, give you a dead body. But anyways, <laughs> if you truly love someone, you would love them enough to care more about their relationship with God than you care about your own pleasure. The question is not, do you love your significant other too much so then you fall into sexual sin? The question is, do you love your significant other enough to protect them from sexual sin? Doing something sexual with your significant other is not being a good boyfriend or girlfriend or good loving. It is hateful because you're causing them to be farther away from God. We often think that this is how we show love 
But that's not love. Love's the opposite. See, love is about sacrifice. Love's not about how do I feel good. Love's about how do I sacrifice my present enjoyment for my partner's relationship with their king. Comer puts it this way, but the fact is, you can have a short period of pain followed by a lifetime of pleasure, or you can have a short period of pleasure followed by a lifetime of pain. Love your significant other enough to have a short period of pain. I know those of you that are dating, engaged, like pre-marriage time is so long. I've been married for almost seven years. I was engaged for like seven days, it seemed like. It's not that long. I promise you, your dating period, engagement period, this isn't from a place of judgment. I was in your place, but I promise you it's not that long. You can wait. I've seen people after people who honor God with relationship. If you go across our Kyle staff team and you skip Taylor and I, you'll see a lot of people who honor God with their relationships. Taylor and I sinned more. We'll talk about that later. So you have to ask yourself, do you trust God to fulfill your desires or do you need someone else to do it for you? See, I think a big reason, if we're honest, that we cross sexual boundaries is actually because we're feeling unfulfilled. So I think the reason I did it is because I had this God-sized hole in my heart that I wasn't letting God fulfill. So I'm like, I gotta find something to fulfill it, so I tried to find it with my ex-girlfriend. Before you get ready to do something with someone else sexually, you're probably not thinking, but if you are thinking, I think a good rule of thumb is ask yourself, how would I feel if someone did to what I'm about to do to them, what if someone did that to my future spouse? If you'd be angry at what they're about to do or what you're about to do, if someone did it to your future spouse, that make you angry? You probably shouldn't do it because that person might be someone else's future spouse. Ask yourself, how would I feel if someone is to do to this person if what I'm about to do to them I did to my future spouse? So what does this all practically look like? I'm going to walk us through two main areas of sexual sin that college students seem to struggle with. Many students struggle with an addiction to pornography. More than $3,000 is spent on porn every second. Three, 6000 9000 12000 15000 going up to a $90 billion industry. Porn can be a stronghold in people's lives. I get it. Been there. Struggled with that in the past. I get it. But the reason porn is such a chain on our lives is because it actually rewires your brain. When you watch porn, you create new neural pathways inside of your brain. So I want you to imagine that you're in a forest. Every time you watch porn, it's like you walk a path in this forest. So the first time that you walk this path, if it's a big forest, you have to like work kind of hard, right? You got to take away branches. You got to like step over high grass. You got to move rocks. It's pretty challenging to get through a path the very first time in a forest. But see, every time you watch porn, it's like you're walking that path again. And every time you walk that same path, it just becomes easier and easier and easier. The branches start to be removed. The grass is matted down. The rocks are gone. So the more and more you do something, it's easier to do it. So neurologically, the more and more you watch pornography, the easier it is to keep doing it because you've walked that path again. So you think that some kind of trigger, something happens, and your automatic neurological response is, I should walk this path to pornography. The devil is smart. He knows how to get in your brain. It's not just about willpower, it's science. Pornography messes with your head, just like a forest becoming easy to walk through. So usually, sexual sin, specifically pornography, this is with all sexual sin, but I'm using this as an example. Usually it starts with some kind of trigger to make you go down that path. For example, maybe when you get on Instagram, you end up seeing something sexual, which makes your brain want a sexual release, so then you think, I should go down that path that has led me to that release, so then you watch porn. 
This makes the path between Instagram, which is harmless on its own, and pornography, a very easy trip because you've made this path. Or let's say every time you're alone in your room back home, late at night, this temptation comes. The more and more you do it, the easier it is to continue doing it. So in order to overcome this sin, it's not just enough to say, I'm going to be free now. No, we have to rewire our brains. This looks like doing two things. First step is we need to eliminate triggers. This means that if every time you go home for a break, you stay up until 1 a.m. in your room alone, then you kind of end up watching porn, don't do that. Go to bed earlier. Sleep on the couch if you need to. Sleep with your door open. You might be like, that's crazy. Sleep on the couch? Yeah, your holiness is more important than your comfort. And you're like, maybe that's, that'd be awkward. My parents might ask why. Yeah, it'd be more awkward if they walk into your room and see what you're doing. But anyways, <laughs> eliminate the trigger. Whatever's triggering you and causing you to go down this path of sexual sin, we gotta get rid of it. So this might look like getting rid of sec- or social media. It might look like getting rid of your smartphone. You're like, this guy's crazy. Do you wanna not sin or not? This might look like not watching certain shows, right? If these things start triggering you, playing certain video games, they're gonna trigger you down this path. You need to eliminate the trigger. The second step is you can create a roadblock. So as I said, the more you travel down this path, the easier it becomes to continue traveling down that path. So you need to make it more challenging to continue down this path. You need to create a roadblock for something that you can't get past. This could look like getting accountability software on your device. So if you look up something naughty, it notifies people that. You don't want to be notified about that. One's called Covenant Eyes, and another one called Ever Accountable. These are softwares that will do this for you. So if you look up something you're not supposed to, it'll notify people. Maybe this will look like you should tell your small group, your small group that you struggle. And maybe you guys text each other before bed to say, like, hey, we're checking on your purity. When I was a freshman in college, my small group leader would randomly text me, hand check. And if I was with Taylor getting a little too excited and I saw a hand check, I'm like, I'm good, you're right. That's my roadblock, I'm not doing it. Or I throw my phone away. But anyways, don't do that. He was checking up on me to make it harder for me to fall into sin. Because then if he texts me, hand check, and I don't text him back, he's gonna ask me the next day, hey, buddy, what happened? How'd the hand check go? I'm like, not well. But make it harder for yourself to fall into sin. Please listen to this. You are not more holy because you overcome sin on your own and without help. It's not like, ooh, I gritted my teeth and bared it and I'm strong now. No, it probably was really hard for you. There's no like spiritual brownie points for going the hard way. Let's make it easier on ourselves. So when you're feeling tempted, tell someone. I have a group of guys that when they're struggling with sexual temptation, they text or they call me. Nothing gets you out of the mood like talking to me. (laughs) It's one of my best skills. I can get you not, like I can take you running away from the forest and you're like, I will never do that again. (laughs) There are multiple guys in our Chi Alpha that have overcome deep, years-long rooted sexual sin simply through texting me when they're feeling a little excited. Because again, then they know if, if... they text me and I text them and then they don't respond. I'm going to ask them the next day, so hey, how'd that go? And they're like, eh, not good. They don't want to do that, right? The pain of staying the same has got to be greater than, or less than the pain of change. All right, the second major sexual sin we struggle with is doing sexual things with a significant other or hooking up, doing something sexual with someone that's not your spouse. Please don't go make out with random guys or girls. That's not my notes. Don't do that. There's, they don't want you because they love you. They want you for something from you, but I'll continue. So I know we're supposed to run away from crossing the line, and I'm just saying pursue Jesus, but I know what you want to know. What is the line? What can I do? Anything that causes you to lust is sin. So in my professional or not professional opinion, making out, laying down and cuddling, 
obviously touching anything in these areas, that's all going to be sin. It's going to cause you to lust. Like I said earlier, if not, there's something else wrong. Like you're not doing it correctly. Those things should cause you to sin. So you and your significant other need to sit down and discuss these boundaries. And something might not cause you to lust. Like maybe just doing like a peck on the cheek doesn't get you too excited. That's great. If it caused your partner to lust, then you go to the lowest common denominator. You got to avoid sin for both of you. I'm just going to say it one more time. I promise you, though, making out is causing you to lust. That is sin. I just, I, it's black and white, I think. Unless you're a robot. So talk about your boundaries. Figure out what you guys need to do. And to really set yourself up for success, it goes beyond this. Yes, having ways to avoid pornography is great. Having, eliminating the triggers, creating roadblocks with your significant other, having good boundaries, and also telling people those boundaries is really good. So don't just like make a pact between each other and never tell anyone because then no one can check up on it with you. So like when I was leading a small group, my guys would tell me, some people wrote them down. I didn't like to ask them for an assignment, but they're like, here they are. I'm like, oh, I feel kind of weird looking at this. But sometimes people would do that because you got to let people into your lives and be honest about that. And if you pass a boundary, you tell someone. So create good systems and let your small group leader or pastor speak into those systems because you might be like, I think we're fine, but in actuality, you're clearly sinning. But it actually starts even before that. What you really should do is reevaluate your inputs. What you're watching, what you listen to, your inputs greatly shape your heart. I think if we're often, this is just me being really honest, you guys, I think often we're like watching Game of Thrones or like some other naughty show that's got nudity in it, or some inappropriate movie like American Pie, which I know none of you watched. I may have watched it when I was in elementary school, but let's keep going. You're watching something like this, like watching Game of Thrones, and then you're listening to inappropriate music with swearing in it or sexual innuendos, and you're like, but Jesus, why do I keep falling into sin? I thought you were bigger than my sin. He is, but quit watching Game of Thrones and expect not to get excited. Like, it's kind of logical, That just doesn't make sense, right? Your current inputs are perfectly designed to give you your current outputs. Your entertainment is so important to who you are. We can't just watch or listen to whatever we want and expect to live a pure and holy lifestyle. Guess what? You having fun and getting to watch a show that you kind of like is not more important than pleasing God. Reading one of those naughty books that have a picture make me feel uncomfortable and they start getting real hot and steamy in the middle, that is not gonna set you up for success. That book is not worth it. These things are not worth falling into sin just because they're fun and entertainment. So maybe you're here and you're asking yourself, why? Why does God care what I do with my body? Why does he care about my sexuality? So some of you guys know, Taylor and I, we have this dog named Cap. My dog is absolutely crazy. He loves to run around in circles. And he's a lucky dog. We've got a fenced-in backyard where he can run all he wants. However, our backyard fence has one spot where the post is broken. And this spot that's broken, it actually leads behind our garage into another fenced-in area, so like he can't run away. But behind our garage in this area is like a bunch of trees and branches, burrs. It's really gross back there. It's really messy and just a lot of mess. So usually, what I do with my dogs, I just let him out, and then when he barks, I come let him back in because I work from home. But there's a day I let him out, and he's out there for quite a while. So I go to the back, and I yell, Cap, come back, and I see him come from behind the garage. And as I see him coming towards me, I see he's covered in little burrs, his fur's all matted. He has one ear that sticks up. It's like the coolest trait in the world. And he was like stuck down, 
And as he's running towards me, he's clearly in so much pain. And then we spent hours brushing him, pulling out all these stupid little burrs. And it hurt him a lot. He was in a lot of pain. This is like our situation with sexual boundaries. See, God has placed a fence and he's told us, this is what's okay. Stay in the boundaries. He says, anything that awakens love, anything that causes you to lust or think sexual thoughts, clearly touching things, doing things like that, anything that charges you or excites you sexually, outside of marriage between a man and a woman, anything outside of that is sin. That's outside the fence. But we can force our way out of the fence. God doesn't force us to stay there. We can go behind the garage and we can try to do things our own way and cross our sexual boundaries. God gives us freedom, just like I give my dog. I don't watch him every step. So we are free to do what we want. But God is smarter than us. God knows that the fenced-in area is safe. He knows it's what's best. And he knows outside of this fence is full of burrs that are going to hurt you. When we go outside of the line, all we're doing is causing ourselves pain. We're causing ourselves a lot of time, a lot of energy, undoing and working past our mistakes. Just like Cap caused himself pain from the burrs. We get that. But something I think is really important to realize is when Cap came back outside the fence, came running towards me, and I saw him in pain, I wasn't angry at him. I didn't look at the dog and yell at him, right? When he came back dirty, I wasn't mad at him because, see, it didn't physically hurt Taylor or I to pull the burrs out of him, right? It didn't cause me any pain, but it hurt him a lot physically. And me seeing my dog that I love in pain, that hurt me emotionally. See, that's why God gives us boundaries because he doesn't want to see us hurt. When Cap came running in, my main concern wasn't to scold him and tell him he's an idiot or a bad dog. No, my chief concern was to clean him up and get rid of the pain. This is us with Jesus. When we fall into sexual sin, God's main concern is not shaming you. God's main concern is not yelling at you and telling you why you're bad. No, his main concern is he just wants to clean you up and get you out of pain. So if you struggle with sexual sin, God's not looking to shame you tonight. Romans 8.1 is clear that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. If you are a son or daughter of God, you have no condemnation. God's not mad at you. Maybe your sex life has looked outside of the parameters that we've described tonight. Maybe you're addicted to pornography. Maybe you're doing something sexual with or lusting after someone that's not your spouse, whether that's through like Instagram or that's through hooking up or making out with random people. Maybe you're struggling with those areas tonight. See, I know how you feel sitting in these chairs because seven years ago, I was in your shoes. I was sitting in a chair in the CAC where we used to meet as my big brother, our former Kai Alpha director, gave this talk on sex. You think it's awkward coming from me? Imagine your older sibling. Anyways, he gave this sermon. At that time, I was engaged to Taylor, and we were crossing sexual boundaries. We were doing things that were not God's best for us. And in that moment, I'll just be honest with you guys, I was mad at Daniel. I'm like, how dare you tell me what I'm doing is wrong? How dare you point out these sins? But really, I was just ashamed. I felt so dirty. Maybe like me in that moment, you felt like your situation is hopeless. Maybe your identity has become wrapped up in your sex life. You think, I'm just a porn addict. That's who I am. I'm bad. Or you think, my value is only my significant other. The only reason I'll be loved or have any worth is through doing sexual things with this person. I have to do it. But it doesn't have to be this way. 
You don't have to find your worth and identity from other people. See, earlier we talked about 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul said flee from sexual immorality. But he ends this talk by saying this. On 1 Corinthians 19 through 20, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What this means, so in the first century Corinth, which is where this letter was written to, in the middle of town, there was a hub for sex trafficking. See, in the center was this slave market where people would buy and sell women like property. However, if you wanted, you could go to this market, you could buy a slave woman, and then you could set her free. Bought with a price. But see, you didn't have to stop there. You could buy this slave woman, set her free, and then you could propose to her and say, will you be my bride? And then you let her in your family. No obligations, but you clothe her. You give her protection. You provide for her. You give her a home. You were bought with a price. So this is where Paul gets the statement. Jesus, he bought us. Jesus set us free. He paid the penalty for our bondage. He paid our price and he sets us free. And he does not force us to be his spouse, but he offers us. He says, will you become my bride? Will you become my people? You were bought with a price and given an option to be like the slave woman who was in bondage to sin, destined to spend eternity apart from God, destined to be sinful, but given an opportunity for something greater. Jesus says that I'm not okay with my people being slaves. Comer says that Jesus buys the shattered human who's known nothing but the pain of rape, prostitution, and shame, and he calls her his bride, and he makes her into something beautiful. See, this is our identity. Not our sexual sins, not our desires. Your identity is you're a son or daughter of King Jesus. You're the chosen one of God. You're the apple of his eye. And until we start to trust the creator above his creation, we will never find freedom. See, this is the heart of Jesus. He loved us so much because the price to get us out of slavery was a very hefty price. It cost him his life. But he loved us enough to pay that very expensive price and to die on a cross for our sins, to pay the price for every sin you've ever committed, including your sexual sins. And I think often we beat ourselves up a lot over these sins. We think, no, I've screwed up too badly. God can never forgive me. What we're doing when we say that is we're actually saying that my sin is greater than the work of Jesus. We are diminishing the work on the cross when we say my sin is too great. No, Jesus is way bigger than your sin. You have not run too far from the king because he's got plenty of money to buy you. He can pay for your sin. I promise you haven't gone too far. Because a true understanding of the death of our King Jesus recognizes that he is way bigger than our sin. And then when we recognize this and recognize that our identity is a son or daughter of God, we learn that there's no reason to feel shame. So do not leave tonight feeling shameful for your past. Instead, leave tonight feeling hopeful. Hopeful because Jesus paid for your sin. He unlocked the handcuffs and says, will you come be my bride and you have a new future. Your sins of your past do not screw you up forever. That's the beauty of Jesus. See, we talk about the paper analogy, right? So we think, oh, I've left some of my paper behind, so I'm destined for failure. No, Jesus can get you a new paper if we'll give it to him and if we'll trust him. I think some people think that I've screwed up too far in the past in order to get, like I'll never get a good Christian spouse because of my sins. That's a lie from the enemy. You can talk to me or Victor or John, the three staff guys in our Kai Alpha, we've all screwed up a lot 
and I'll have wonderful brides who are pure before marriage. You've not run too far. Jesus loves us so much, though, that not only does he pay for our sins and clean us up, he also gives us a better way. He shows us how to live in boundaries. He shows us how to avoid getting pain in the future. And this is what happened with me with my dog, with Cap. See, right after he came in and we got him cleaned up, the first thing I did is I went right outside and I fixed the fence. He wasn't getting out anymore. I gave him a new way to stay in his boundaries. And God wants to do the same thing for you tonight. The main idea tonight is we can trust the creator of sex over his creation. See, Jesus wants to take our dirty rags and he wants to make them into something beautiful. He wants to cleanse us from lust. He wants us to make us his bride and wash us white as snow. So if you're here tonight and you're feeling, feeling shameful, you're feeling burdened, you're feeling dirty, let Jesus clean you up tonight. But then change. Don't keep getting dirty again. Jesus cleans you so you can be clean, not so you can roll around with the pigs again. Now, when Jesus cleans us, he provides us a better way. He shows us how to be holy, how we can be like him, having this countercultural sexual ethic that makes no sense to the world but makes perfect sense when you're living in it. He knows that we are happier when we stay clean. He knows that if we cut off our sin, if we flee sexual immorality, we will avoid a lot of pain. See, I want you to imagine this life where you feel no shame when we talk about sex, where you aren't addicted to pornography. Imagine the freedom of that. Imagine what it'd look like for you to honor God in your relationship. See, I have a dream that on your wedding day, you get to look at your spouse and say, we did it, we made it, without any feeling of shame. And even if you've already screwed up, you can still have that feeling because there's grace in the kingdom of God. Imagine a world where you have nothing to hide. Imagine a world where you can feel truly free. That can become your reality. Let's all stand. I'm gonna give us a couple ways to respond tonight. First of all, as we talk about Jesus paying the price of our sin and setting us free from slavery, maybe you're here tonight and you've never let Jesus pay that price, whether it's for your sexual sin or other sin. And tonight, Jesus wants to make you his. So that's you. I'm gonna count to three. And if on the count of three, you'll raise your hand as a symbol to God, not to anyone around you, but as a symbol to God to say, I'm all in. And you're accepting his payment and accepting his marriage invitation to become with him you're going to accept that tonight on the count of three, I'm asking you to raise your hand. Sign of God. One, two, three. Yes, thank you. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for welcoming us in your kingdom, God. Thank you for your goodness, Jesus, and for everything that you've done. We love you so much. Amen. Amen. All right, staff team, uh, CMITs, if you guys could go to the back. Response team, you can stay up here. Staff team and CMITs, you go to the back. I'm gonna give you a second way to respond tonight. So if you're here and you're feeling some kind of weight, what I'm gonna ask you to do is to please talk to someone. Because often we get like in these moments where we feel the presence of God and feel conviction, but then we don't do anything with it. And that doesn't really help as much. So I'm gonna encourage you to go to someone in the back and pray with them. Confess sin, let them help you and go on this journey with you. You respond that way. Or maybe you wanna come to the altar and just be with Jesus. This is open up here. We call this an altar as a way to worship to God. So you can go to the back and talk to someone. You can come up here and worship. You can stay in your seat. You can sit. You can do whatever you want. But I encourage you to respond some way. And if you are feeling shame or guilt or there's something you want to change, please go talk to someone. If you feel uncomfortable with them, you can grab your small group leader. Do something, though, to keep going what's happening in your heart. All right?
Let me pray for us. And then after that, please, if you're struggling, please go back there. Don't care who's looking around at you. Don't let public opinion impact your holiness. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for this Chi Alpha group. Thank you for students that we love dearly, God. I pray that no student will walk out feeling shameful, God, or thinking that we're judging them, God. There is no judgment in this house tonight, God, because we've struggled. We've been there, Jesus, but we know you have a better future. God, I pray that a whole lot of fences are gonna get fixed up tonight, God. We're gonna stay in the fences. We're gonna honor you, God, and we're gonna see breakthrough and freedom in Chi Alpha. We love you so much, Jesus. Amen.